And the rest of us will be in Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19 can be found on page uh, 64 of those Black Pew Bibles in front of you if you don't have a Bible with you today. And if you don't have a Bible of your own that you can read and understand regularly, we invite you just to take that Bible that's in the pew in front of you, or there's some more back in the foyer. Uh, We want everybody to have a copy of God's Word that you can read and understand, and we want to be reading it and growing in it together. In fact, that's in part why we study through a book of the Bible at a time consecutively so that we can all be on the same page as we study together throughout the week. I'm going to read uh, verses 16 through 25. I'll read those out loud. I invite you to follow along silently in your Bible. Uh, Then we'll pray over that passage, and then we'll spend some time unpacking it together. Exodus chapter 19, beginning in verse 16, this is God's Word. On the third day, when morning came, there was thunder and lightning, a thick cloud on the mountain, and a very loud trumpet sound, so that all the people in the camp shuddered. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was completely enveloped in smoke because the Lord came down on it in fire. Its smoke went up like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain shook violently. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in the thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai at the top of the mountain. Then the Lord summoned Moses to the top of the mountain, and he went up. The Lord directed Moses, go down and warn the people not to break through to see the Lord, otherwise many of them will die. Even the priests who came near the Lord must consecrate themselves or the Lord will break out in anger against them. Moses responded to the Lord, the people cannot come up Mount Sinai since you warned us, put a boundary around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord replied to him, go down and come back with Aaron, but the priests and the people must not break through to come up to the Lord, or he will break out in anger against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. This is God's word. Would you pray with me over the reading over it? Father, we come grateful for your word today, and we pray that you would give us wisdom to understand it. God, we come knowing that The truth in Your Word is the truth that we need, Father. The truth in Your Word is the only truth that saves. God, Your Word is the only way that You reveal to us Your good and perfect will. And so, Father, as Your people, we come this morning seeking. We come acknowledging that there is sin in us. That, well, Lord, we are striving for holiness. We are striving for goodness. But, Father, we acknowledge that we fall short and And so it's Your Word we look to for direction. pray that through Your Holy Spirit this morning, that You would show us from these verses the significance that came on the day that You came down to visit with Your people at Mount Sinai. Lord, teach us Your holiness. Teach us Your power. Teach us Your Word. And Lord, show us Jesus through this text, we pray. Because Jesus is who we need. And it's in His name that we come to you this morning. And all God's people said, 
had a high school principal, uh, an assistant principal, who was uh, really meaningful to me. He's meaningful to a lot of students in our high school. And he always taught, on the very first day that you'd meet him as a freshman, he would teach you a saying that he expected you to remember for all of your high school career. And in fact, most of us carried it well beyond. He would teach the five Ps. Prior preparation prevents poor performance. I've kept that with me. I like to be prepared. And there was a moment in my life where I thought that I was. You see, we have, you usually don't have this amount of time to get ready for something. But in 2010, we had 36 weeks to prepare. Monica and I had been married for a few years, and we found out in early 2010 that she was pregnant with our, uh, what would be our firstborn middle daughter. Now, that ex- requires some explaining, right? Uh, we were a little weird as a family, where Sophie was our firstborn. Um, the only problem with that was we hadn't met all of our children yet, and so Sophie's actually our middle daughter. She's the first one we met. We would meet the rest of our kids later on, um, but she's the first one that we uh, met, and we found out we were going to meet her soon in early 2010, and so we began preparing. We bought a house, picked out nursery decorations, and by we, I mean like the royal we, right? Monica handled most of the nursery stuff and figuring out, I just carried the boxes and smiled and and so we made all the preparations. The hospital was an hour away. We lived in East Tennessee. The hospital we were going to was an hour away. And so I planned out the route. I made sure the car was always full of gas, um, had the bags packed, had everything going on. September rolls around. I was in youth ministry at the time at a church in East Tennessee. And in September, every year, youth groups across the country celebrate or they, they observe an event called See You at the Pole. They gather on their school campuses and they pray. And that's always on a Wednesday. So on a Tuesday night, we decided we would host the See You at the Pole rally where our church and a couple other churches all gathered. So we had our students and students from a couple other churches in our, in our church building. Um, we had a guest speaker. We had a worship band. We had the whole nine yards going on that Tuesday night. About 200 kids in the building. And Monica always served right alongside me in youth ministry. She was on bed rest for a little while uh, during this time. But by that point, she was released. And so she was right back leading a small group and um, was there that night uh, with all of our kids, and she was helping out, and I was running around like crazy because, again, 200 kids in the building, um, way more than we normally had. And I noticed at some point it, it dawned on me that, hey, I haven't seen Monica in a while. And about the time that it dawned on me, one of our leaders, her name was Debbie, she's a dear friend of the family, and she came up to me with this great big smile on her face, and she says, Chris, you need to follow me. Okay, sure, why not? Uh, Debbie tells you to do something. She's one of those people that you don't, you know, not do it. And so as I follow her, she says, Monica needs you. And as we get back toward the back of the church building where the women's restroom is, there's this great cloud of female witnesses gathered around. And as I'm wading through the crowd, somebody at some point says, Monica's water broke. And it's at that moment that all that good planning that I did evaporated. Because I've got 200 people in the building, all of our church here, all of our leaders here, and now we got to go. And so we gather up our stuff. Uh, I don't even remember if we had our bags that we packed or not at this point. Uh, but we leave from the church. And I don't remember, the next like 12 years are a blur. Um, but but I, remember, I remember a few things about that day. We drove too fast. That hour drive took maybe 45 minutes. Uh, I do remember we stopped at Subway because she was afraid they wouldn't let her eat when we got to the hospital. Uh, and so we had to have food. I remember that. I remember pulling into the ER, because this was after hours, so you have to go into the ER. And I remember pulling into the ER on two wheels, 
and, you know, racing up in front of the doors. And I remember getting out of my favorite car that I've ever owned. It was a red Ford Taurus station wagon. Now, I've had Camaro, Bronco, I've had trucks, all this. Ford Taurus station wagon is the greatest car I've ever owned. If you want to talk about it later, if you're a Ford Taurus enthusiast that is here today, we can talk in the back afterward. I'd love to have a conversation with you. But I get out of my Ford Taurus station wagon, get ready to go in the hospital, and I immediately begin chasing my Ford Taurus station wagon because I forgot to put it in park. And so the car that I love and the woman that I love with the child I haven't met yet are about to go into the ER before they're ready for us. And so I got, got caught it, put it in park, got her in, got there, everything worked out. But it dawned on me at some point in that whole process that despite all of my planning, despite my principal teaching me that prior preparation prevents poor performance, I was unprepared. And now I live in a state of perpetual unpreparedness. But I try. The Israelites, spent three days preparing for the Lord to come down from Mount Sinai. Everything in their life for those three days was supposed to prepare them for this very moment. God had set aside those three days as a time of preparation. And in a sense, everything really that had happened in, this, in the book of Exodus to this point, everything that happened to them was preparing them for this moment. All the way back in Exodus 6, we read, therefore tell the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from the forced labor of the Egyptians and rescue you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. You will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from the forced labor of the Egyptians. You will know that I am the Lord your God. This was all happening. Everything that had happened in the Exodus account so far was all happening so that Israel will know that Yahweh is God. Where it says Lord in that text that was just on the screen and, and then ten times in the passage we just read in Exodus 19 where the font changes a little bit and it says Lord in all capital letters. That's how you know that, that it's the, the proper name for God showing up in the text. Yahweh, or if you grew up on the King James Version, it translates it Jehovah in a couple of places. Either way, it's fine. It's all the same word. But this was all happening so that Israel will know that Yahweh is God. God is God, and there's no little g God like Him. But despite all that preparation, Israel wasn't ready. Even on last week's text, God said He was coming to them. Today we find out what happened when the Lord came down. The Israelites were camped at the foot of Mount Sinai. The Lord's presence had come to dwell at the top of Mount Sinai. The Lord met with Moses there, but now He's going to reveal Himself to all of Israel in a special way. He was coming to meet with them, and the way God came down, it tells us, it reveals to us three things about His relationship to Israel. And we see in those three things a pattern marked out for our relationship with him, for the way that he relates to us, the way that he reveals himself to us is reflected in the way he reveals himself to Israel. The first thing we see is that the Lord came down and revealed his glory. The text tells us he, there was thunder and lightning, a thick cloud on the mountain, and a very loud blast from the ram's horn, so that all the people in the camp shuddered in verse 16. This is a huge moment, one of the most powerful scenes in all of Scripture. I would argue that this is the most powerful 
um, display, the most powerful show of God's power, of His glory, of His authority, since Sodom and Gomorrah. I mean, verses 16 through 19 describe something akin to a volcanic eruption meets an earthquake meets a hurricane. Right? If you want to read something funny, read a scholar trying to make sense of what happens in these verses. Right, there's not a, a meteorological, this is not like within the realm of like KMOU first alert weather, right? They're great, this is outside their purview, okay? This isn't natural, this isn't some naturally occurring phenomenon. This is God revealing His glory. He's directly manifesting His power before His people. He is showing that He is sovereign over all creation. He's not just some disembodied presence that Israel can keep at arm's length. No, He's God over all the elements, over all the creatures. He shows His power with thunder and lightning and smoke and shaking. So there's all these huge, all these big picture creation elements are going on. But there's something else here that introduces us to God, not just as Creator, not just as, not just as authority over the created realm, but it also announces him as king. We have this blast of the ram's horn so far in the original language. We're not told who's making the sound or where it's coming from, but the Israelites would have recognized its significance. This is what you do when the king shows up. Today when royalty or when a dignitary, when the president visits a country, there's a parade, there's a motorcade. Right? You know they're present because of what's going on in your city or in your town. If you've ever been anywhere where one of those folks has shown up. This is how Israel would have known God is present. They hear this unending blast of the ram's horn. The Lord is drawing near to His people. Matthew Henry wrote, Never was there such a sermon preached before nor since as this, which was here preached to the church in the wilderness. For the preacher was God Himself, and the pulpit was Mount Sinai, and to carry that illustration forward, the congregation was Israel, and God thought that they hadn't seen enough of His power yet. Think about how bold that is. Think about how drastic that is, church. Israel ate manna every morning. Israel drank water from a rock. Israel walked through the Red Sea on dry ground. Israel witnessed the Nile River turn to blood, plagues of locusts and frogs and hail and darkness. And everything they had seen, everything they had experienced, everything they had lived through, but they needed a deeper experience than that to fully wrap their mind around God's glory and church. They're still not even there. If we learn nothing else from this passage, let's learn that we should never be satisfied with our knowledge of who God is. God is moving Israel's worldview here. He's moving it from one that is me-centric, man-centric, me-centric, to one that is God-centric. We, we see this in our culture too. We're a, we're a man-centric culture. We're a me-centric culture. The, the prevailing worldview more and more around us and, and the uh, the way that our institutions work more and more in days of late is that they are governed by what we feel to be true about ourselves and the world around us. They're centered on me. They're centered on uh, my expression of my own reality. Uh, we're exposed to that type of thinking all the time. Carl Truman pointed this out in uh, the introduction to a, a great book that he wrote a few years ago. I'd recommend it to you, The, the Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. He pointed out that 
40 years ago, when you went to a doctor and said you felt like you were a man trapped in a woman's body, the doctor would treat you to try to align your reality inside your own mind with the actual reality of the world. Now, if you go to a doctor and say that, they're going to try to treat the entire world around you to make it line up with what you do to be right about yourself. Church, that is me-centered. That is a me-centric reality. And we've got to recognize, church, that that me-centered worldview, it creeps its way into us all the time. We're not immune to it. Israel wasn't either. I mean, they had done nothing but complain since leaving Egypt. The one thing that they wanted their entire lives, freedom. They'd never experienced it before. They'd never tasted freedom. Slavery to the Egyptians is all that they knew. And so when God gives it to them, do they rejoice? Okay, for a minute. But then they begin complaining. You see, God's standard of care wasn't up to their expectations. So here's what God does. He gets their attention at Mount Sinai. He reminds them that this story is not about you. It's about God. This story isn't about Egypt. This story isn't about Moses. This story is about God. Church, becoming me-centric is dangerous. It'll tear apart your family. It'll tear apart your friendships. It'll tear apart your church. What we do here is about God. Not about any of us as individuals. What you do at home is about God. Not about you, not about your spouse, not about your kids, not first and foremost anyway. God is the main character of your story. And here's the dangerous truth. The more we're exposed to God, the more we're at risk of growing comfortable with Him, growing stagnant in our knowledge of Him and of His Word. You see, if we're not actively pursuing holiness, we will stagger into selfishness, church. God is revealing Himself to Israel here in all His glory so that Israel will know Him anew, know Him in a new way so that Israel will recognize Him for who He is. You see, the more we know God, the more we can love Him. The more we can love the people around us. And, and no matter where you are at in your faith today, God is always more glorious than you understand right now. Israel needed this experience. Israel needed to tremble on the mountain. Church, what do you need today? What are you seeking? See, God, God revealed His glory after they prepared. God could have shown up at any time, at any point in this story. Could have shown up in the desert. Could have shown up at Meribah. Could have shown up at the springs. Could have shown up when they were thirsty. He didn't. He showed up on the mountain after they had prepared. How does your daily routine prepare you for God to show up? How does your daily routine prepare you, church, to seek God's glory? Does He come first, or is He just kind of thrown in whenever you have time? There's a lot of talk about revival right now. And church, let's be honest. If we miss out on a work of the Holy Spirit, it's not because the Spirit is unwilling to work. It's often because we're unprepared and not seeking Him. Let us resolve to never decide that we've got God figured out, that we have enough of Him. Let's be a church that is always seeking to grow in our understanding of who God is and how He would have us to live. God's glory is not an equation that we solve. It's not a set of rules that we memorize. Understanding God, worshiping God for who He is, never stops. 
And when we dive deep into relationship with Him, we never find the bottom. There's always unexplored glory when it comes to God. We see that glory unfolded for us in a new way at Sinai in Exodus 19. Church, we, we worship a God who is to be feared. Not feared like snakes or spiders, but held in awe, revered, respected for who He is. And when we recognize that, I don't think, maybe it's true, I don't know, but I don't think once you'd experience this, once you'd experience God speaking through the thunder, that's what the text says. It doesn't say that there was a bit of a thunderstorm. Okay, We have the sky is on fire, the mountain is covered in smoke, the ground is shaking, and when God speaks to Moses the way the text reads in the original, He spoke through the thunder. God's voice booms in the thunder. When you experience that as an Israelite, I think your problems have to get smaller, don't they? Gosh, God, I recognize that, yeah, you're in control. Like, yeah, you made the ground shake yesterday, God, but, but Bill, my neighbor, God, he is just too much. I don't know if you... God, you, you shook this mountain. You came down in fire. You spoke out of a storm. But God, I'm just anxious right now a little bit. And I'm not belittling anxiety. Anxiety is a real thing. But we have to recognize, church, that whatever our problem is, if it's a problem in your marriage, if it's a health problem, if it's a financial problem, if it's a social problem, whatever it is, God is bigger than our problems. He's bigger than your anxiety. He's bigger than your, than your doubt. He's bigger than your anger. He's bigger than your shame. He's bigger than your pain. Most of us simply need a bigger picture of God. And we'll find that picture. We'll find that understanding of God when we seek it in His Word. That's the second thing we see revealed. Reveal His glory. No, He spoke. He revealed His Word. Verse 20, The Lord came down on Mount Sinai at the top of the mountain. Then the Lord summoned Moses to the top of the mountain, and He went up. The Lord directed Moses, Go down and warn the people not to break through to see the Lord, otherwise many of them will die. God shows up and God speaks out. It would be nice to think that just by demonstrating His power to Israel, that that would have been enough to keep them in line. And it clearly wasn't. God, by His words, He sets boundaries for a life pleasing to Him. He'd already given them instructions. They'd already marked off the mountain. But God calls Moses to Him yet again and gives Him a word about how the people are to live. I love the grace of God, by the way. Recognize that in this text, He tells them what not to do to not get themselves killed about three or four times. Mark off the mountain, don't touch it. Hey Moses, come up, go tell the people. Mark off the mountain and don't touch it. Moses like, hey God, you already told them that. Yes, Moses, they're idiots. I didn't see that's, that's implied in the text. Moses, tell them again, because I don't know if the Israelites were like <laughs> me. And maybe you identify with this too. Sometimes I don't learn my lesson the first time. Anybody else? Oh, the rest of you are smarter than me. That's good, and I hope that that's true of you. But God makes it very clear here. God gives Israel instructions to keep them alive. That, that's, you recognize what He's doing? He's not just saying, well, here's a set of rules. Kind of like the rules that we put on the wall in kindergarten or first and second grade or, I don't know, high school. I don't know if you still do that. Maybe you should. And if you break those rules, 
I mean, when I was in school, you break those rules, you get sent to the principal's office, and he whacks you with a paddle and sends you back. I don't think that happens much anymore. But you put the rules on the wall, you break those rules, you get a piece of paper that says you have to go sit in the office for a little while. And let's be honest, sometimes that's better than science class, right? So we do that, and we break the rules, and the consequences aren't that bad. But God is giving them laws, he's giving them rules, and says, look, if you break this, if you don't follow my instruction, you will die. Once, touch the mountain, you will die. If God hadn't given Israel that instruction, it's still true. They touch that mountain, they're going to die. But they would have been really confused about why their hikers kept disappearing. If God didn't give them the truth, it would have taken them forever to figure out that they can't approach where God is. You see, all throughout Exodus 19, Israel's sinfulness puts them in danger. They couldn't approach God, because as we learned from the Garden of Eden all the way to the cross, that which is unclean cannot come into the presence of that which is holy. Sin can't come before God without being destroyed. So for their own safety, God set boundaries. God's Word comes to His people through His prophet, and the point is to teach Israel how to live a life that pleases God, and not one that leads to their destruction. Church, this is a template for the law, which will come in the next chapter. It's also a template for the Bible that we're holding in our hands that's sitting in front of us today. God gives us His Word so that we will know who He is and how we can know Him and live a life pleasing to Him. Listen to what Paul says about the law over in Galatians 3. The law then, God's Word, God's truth, the law then was our guardian until Christ so that we could be justified by faith. Guardian is a word the CSB uses to translate a difficult word in the original language. It refers to a servant who is to both protect and instruct a child. God begins giving the law in Exodus 20, and that's its purpose, to protect and instruct. Whatever it was that was going on up the mountain, that was something that would have drawn people's attention. Sure, it was dangerous, right? Crazy stuff is going on up there. And so part of us goes, well, I would never try to approach that. That's, that's insanity. I'd never try to go up that mountain if all that is smoke and fire and all that stuff's going on. And I think that too, reading the text, I would hope that I wouldn't try to go up that mountain, even if God didn't tell me not to. But think about what you do when that tornado siren goes off. Some of you, you hear the tornado siren, you go to the basement, you go to the bathtub, or you go to the church basement, or whatever it is that your tornado plan is. But the rest of us, we go out on the back deck with our camera phone. Oh, tornado! Let's see it! All right, that's because we're in the Midwest. Rational people run and hide. We're like, ah, danger, fun. Israel recognized there was danger at the top of the mountain, and they would have pursued that danger to their death. But it seems that once that initial shock wore off, Moses had to go back down and remind them not to approach. I love the way verse 21 reads. The Lord directed Moses. That's exactly It directs us. What would have happened to any Israel that didn't obey God's word? They would have died. Church, what happens if we don't obey God's word? We die. God is teaching Israel to obey His Word, specifically teaching them to obey Moses here, which they've struggled with so far. But we, we church, recognize this. We have a more complete revelation of God than any Israelite had in Moses' day. We don't get to hear God speaking through the thunder, that's true. 
But we get hundreds of years of God's truth packed into 66 books written by dozens of authors that all tell us one story about God's glory. Church, we need God's Word. I can't urge you enough to immerse yourself in the Word of God on a day-by-day basis. The truths revealed in Scripture, they lay out the pattern by which we're called to live. And when we take that pattern, when we take that, that way of life, and we try to match our life up to it, do you know what we find? And this might not be what you expected to hear in church this morning, but stick with me. When you look at the pattern of Scripture, and we try to match up our lives to it, when we take into account the holiness required in a relationship with God, we find that every single time we fail. I noticed that one of the great underrated movies of all time was on the other day. It's not, it was on a streaming service. We were scrolling through trying to find something to watch. Uh, it's called The Knight's Tale. Fantastically fun story about a tanner son who becomes a knight, wins jousting tournaments, all this stuff. And the bad guy a couple of times, when he beats the good guy early in the movie, knocks him off his horse and he looks down at him and he says, you've been weighed, you've been measured, and you've been found wanting. Some of you are quoting it with me, which means you're my people. I like it. Um, you've been weighed, you've been measured, you've been found wanting. That actually comes from Daniel 5, by the way, but you've been weighed, you've been measured, you've been found wanting. You are not enough. And that's true of what the Bible does of us. It looks at us, weighs, measures, and finds that none of us are worthy to go up that mountain and meet with God. Romans 3, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is what we feel to us in God's Word. Israel can't approach God on the mountain because of their sin, but there's good news. Because the mediator can. God does call someone to Him. He reveals His Word and He also reveals the path. That's the third thing that we learn from the text today. God reveals the path to salvation and that path runs through the mediator. Look at verse 23, Moses responded to the Lord, the people can't come up Mount Sinai since you warned us, put a boundary around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord replied to him, go down and come back with Aaron, but the priests and the people must not break through to come up to the Lord or he will break out in anger against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. Only the mediator can come up the mountain. This is the second time God drives home this point in chapter 19 that the only way to come into His presence without the threat of destruction is through a mediator. Not one appointed by the people, but one appointed by God Himself. There was no election that put Moses in office. God called Moses, and remember, Moses said, Here I am, take Aaron. Right, Here I am, take Jimmy Johnson, Tommy Thompson, take my best friend Bo, take anybody that you want, Lord, as long as I don't have to go. That's how Moses responded when God called him. Lord, anybody but me... And God says, no, you are the one I'm choosing to be the mediator of the people. God appointed the mediator, and if we try to get to God anyway, other than the mediator, what does God say twice in these verses? I will break out in anger against them. God doesn't make idle threats, by the way. If you try to come to me on your own, I will break out anger against you, is what God says. And fortunately, we don't get to see what that means in this passage because Israel doesn't, but we know that it wouldn't have been good for Israel. There's no other way to get to God, church, than through His mediator. 
still today, there's people that say, I can find my way to God without Jesus. I can find my way to God through Muhammad or through some other leader. I, I'll, be, I'll just be good. I've read the Ten Commandments. I didn't kill anybody today. Pretty good. Especially compared to like my neighbor. Like I'm better than my neighbor. I'm probably in the top you know, 10, 20% of people. I'm pretty good. God will accept me. I keep the golden rule. I'll give lots of money. I'll come to church. I'll do it my way and He'll still accept me. Or something, they don't have to worry about that. God's not like that. God's nice. He likes everybody. Just how you are. However your heart tells you want to be, God loves you that way. It's the Old Testament God that gets mad and smites people. The God of the New Testament isn't a smiter. He's a happy, grandfatherly figure in the sky. He just wants to give you a hug and a puppy and affirm you and tell you everything will be okay. God actually responds to both of those schools of thought in Exodus 19. He says this, I am the almighty God of thunder and cloud and fire, and no one comes into my presence apart from the mediator that I've appointed. That's essentially what God tells His people in Exodus 19. And it is absolutely impossible to draw near to God or to enter into covenant with Him without judgment apart from His mediator. Jesus said it Himself, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Because we don't have Moses as our mediator, a flawed and failed mediator. No, we have Jesus as our mediator. Just like Moses ascended the mountain and went... Jesus ascended into God's presence for us. Paul picks up on this idea in his letter to Timothy. He writes this, This is good and it pleases God our Savior who wants everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Jesus Christ. God wants everyone to come to the knowledge of the truth. That's why some of you are here today, in fact. God, in His grace, has drawn you into a place where you would hear the good news of the Gospel, recognizing that life may not have taken the path that you thought it would to this point. Israel's past to Mount Sinai was a mess. They'd been a nation of slavery, a nation abused, a nation neglected by the Egyptians, and then God rescued them as His own. The good news for you today, if you're here, and you thought you could get to God any other way than through Jesus, the good news is that there is one who came to stand before God for all of us. He came to be the price and the payment for the sin of everyone who ever calls on His name for salvation. You see, all of us were in debt, spiritually speaking. The, the Bible says that it's our sin that has earned us a debt before God. The penalty for sin is death, and that is a debt that none of us can pay, no, ha no matter how big the checkbook. You get one life, and your sin has cost you that life. God is holy. No sin can come into His presence and not be destroyed. We learn that in today's text. And so, instead of calling one man to be our mediator, Moses, God sent His only begotten Son, fully God, fully man, Jesus Christ. He lived the perfect life. He upheld all the law that God is about to give to Israel. These next dozens of chapters of Scripture that encompass what it means to lead a holy life, Jesus hit every benchmark. He was perfect. He didn't sin. He didn't earn death. Yet He offered Himself up as a sacrifice for you if you'll call on His name to be saved. That's the Gospel. 
we repent of our sin, we place our faith in Jesus Christ as our Savior, and we are saved. And if you're here and you know you don't belong to Jesus Christ, you can today repent of your sin. That means turn away from your sin and turn to Jesus Christ in faith. And the Bible says you'll be saved. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is the Lord and believe in your heart God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved, Romans 10, 9. Church, those of you here that are here and you belong to Jesus, you have a relationship with Him, you are saved. The mediator stood in your place, took your death, has gone to the Father on your behalf. Do you marvel at His glory? Do you live out His Word? Are you devoted to His worship? Israel was unprepared because they forgot how glorious God was. Here's the reality for everybody sitting in this room today. It's that one day, you will stand before the God of thunder and lightning and earthquake and fire. And you'll either stand on your own merit, on the stuff that you've done, on your own pile of goodness, or you'll stand on the merit of the mediator. The Lord has been good to His church. He came down, He revealed His glory, He revealed His Word, and He revealed to us His mediator. God has given us everything that we need to be prepared. He has shown us what it means to lead a life that glorifies Him. So church, are we following? We, like Israel, stand at the foot of the mountain. And we're going to learn later in Exodus that when the cat's away, the mice will play a little bit. And by play, I mean make their own God sin and get themselves killed. Because when Moses goes back up to receive the law, Israel's going to say, oh, that Moses guy, he's gone. We better make our own God now. And so they forge themselves a golden calf to worship. Church, standing at the foot of that mountain felt like an eternity for Israel. They waited a long time for Moses to return with the law. We stand in that same moment. God has laid His good word before us. He has put out the boundaries of life for you and I. He's revealed Himself to us. He's revealed His mediator to us. Are we following that word? Are we glorifying that God who has shown Himself to us? And are we living in such a way that we belong to that mediator? Church, is my prayer that we are. If you're here and you don't know the mediator, Jesus Christ, I'd love to in just a few minutes, talk to you about what it means to trust Him as your Savior and to follow Him. Some of us, like Israel, we've stood on that mountain for a while and, and God hasn't revealed Himself in thunder and fire in a while. We've kind of forgotten. We've forgotten how marvelous God is. We've forgotten His power. We've forgotten His glory. And we've kind of been living like we get to set our own rules for a little while. We need to repent and recognize that we don't get to chart our own territory anymore. We don't get to chart our own course. We don't get to be our own mediator. It's not our goodness that God's going to look at. It's the goodness of Jesus Christ, and He's the one we need to be living for and worshiping. It's going to require us to reorder our lives, to reorder the way that we spend our free time, to reorder the way we spend our money, to reorder the way that we love our family, the way we love our co-workers. Jesus will come up and He'll sum up all the law. Again, dozens of chapters of law in the Old Testament. Matthew 22, they come to Jesus and say, hey, of all those laws that God gave us, what is the most important? He's going to boil it down to two things that we get to spend some time talking about over the next three weeks. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Those are the instructions that the mediator brought us from God to live this life.
church. Let's go and live it in a way that honors that God who deserves the glory from our lives. Would you pray with me? Father, we can't even adequately wrap our mind around what you did that day at Mount Sinai. We don't know what it's like for the sky to be on fire, to be filled with smoke, for the ground to be shaking, for the wind to be blowing, for the unending blast of the ram's horn. God, just the, the sensory overload described in this passage just blows us away, and yet we recognize that God, that is only a fraction of Your glory because while You're revealing that, Lord, You're still keeping the entire universe knit together by Your goodness. And so, Father, in no way do we have You all the way figured out. In no way do we understand You fully. In no way can we adequately worship all of who You are. Because our minds are, are too small. Yet, Lord, You have revealed Yourself to us more than enough. God, You have given us more than enough of Your will, of Your Word. You have shown us enough of Your glory that, God, we, we, Lord, we'll never run out of ways to worship You. We'll never run out of things to say. We should never run out of, of praise to return to You because of Your goodness. You truly are an awesome God. An awesome God who has revealed Your will to us. You've revealed Your Word to us. You spoke. Lord, You spoke verbally to Moses and to Israel. Lord, You revealed Your Word to men over the course of hundreds of years who wrote down Your Word and then You had it preserved for us so that we today can have You speaking to us through Scripture and by Your Holy Spirit. And God, in, in all of that revealing of Yourself, You reveal to us the way to salvation. Our Mediator, Jesus Christ. Who offered Himself as a substitute sacrifice for all those who will ever call on Your name for salvation. You are faithful to save. You are mighty to save those who come to You and repent. God, I pray now for those within the sound of my voice who have never repented of their sins and trusted Jesus Christ as their Savior. They may lead a life that looks like they have. Their family may think they have. They, they're here. They're here often. They understand the language of Christianity. They, they know some Bible verses. They sing songs. But God, in their heart, they know that they've never repented of their sins and placed their faith in Jesus Christ. God, I pray that person today would be saved by the power of Your Holy Spirit as You convict their heart to repent, as You bring their dead heart to life, God. I pray for those who are far from You, who have never even considered what it means to be a Christian, who are trying to get to You their own way or trying to, to get to the best life they can right now at the expense of everyone else around them. God, I pray that that person today and repent of their sin and trust in the mediator for salvation in Jesus Christ. Well, there are some of us here who have simply allowed life to cloud our vision 
And we've forgotten the power of the One who saved us. We've forgotten the glory of the God who sets mountains ablaze. We've forgotten the glory of the God who brings dead hearts to life, who overcame the grave, who spoke the universe into existence. God, we have, we've made You entirely too small in our mind's eye. God, we pray that You would just blow up our understanding of You today. Let us lead lives that obey Your Word and glorify You in all that we do because You deserve it all, Father. You created it all. You have given us everything that we have and You deserve the praise for all of it, God. Never let our hearts grow dull in our view of You. Lord, let us be a people committed to Your Word. And to living out Your Word in everything that we do, we pray. In Your Son's name. And all God's people say, Amen.